Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Welcome to the ASC podcast series. I'm Jim Hemphill, contributing writer for American Cinematographer magazine. My guest today is director of photography Frank Barrera, who's here to talk about his work on the acclaimed independent feature In the Family. Since the film opened in 2011, it has steadily accumulated the accolades all filmmakers dream of. Rave reviews from Roger Ebert and the New York Times, among many others, an Independent Spirit Award nomination for Best First Feature, and numerous festival awards. A beautiful meditation on what it makes a family, the film combines characterizations of remarkable depth with long takes, precise compositions, and a heavy reliance on natural light. The result is a film in which restraint and subtlety yield intense emotional rewards for the viewer and recall the impact of the best dramas by Ozu, Bergman, and Cassavetes. It's my pleasure to welcome Frank Barrera here to talk about his work on the picture. Uh, before we talk about In the Family, tell me a little bit about your background. I know you've, you've done a wide array of work in TV features, music videos, commercials. Uh, how did you get started? What was the career path that got you to this point? Uh, well, the, how about the short version? <laughs> sure. I went to film school, uh, SUNY Purchase, and studied cinematography. And uh, after I got out, I guess, in uh, 1995, I graduated. And uh, at the time, there, and still, I guess you could say, in, in this day, there's not a lot of opportunities for young cinematographers. So I went the route of uh, getting involved with uh, Grip and Electric and uh, working my way up as a gaffer on a wide range of uh, productions. Did a lot of uh, low-budget independent films, which is uh, essentially uh, where I learned pretty much everything I know about lighting. Did that for several years and uh, then made the jump to uh, director photography. I guess it was... Uh, my first film, my first feature was, I think it was uh, 2000, oh, I should know, it was 2004, which is uh, a film which I'll get back to probably later because that's sort of why I got in the family was because of uh, Runaway, which is directed by Tim McCann. And uh, you're trying to get, you know, trying to just chugging along in New York City and uh, getting as much uh, feature work as possible, which is not a lot. Doing a lot of uh, TV production. And I've actually I just got out here to Los Angeles uh, well, not quite a year ago. And uh, so here I am. Well, and you mentioned your first film connecting to In the Family. So how, how did you get the job on In the Family? Uh, I've, this is, In the Family is, my, uh, is only my fourth feature. The subsequent films were all uh, psychological thrillers, which, uh, as you are, I'm sure, aware of, is uh, very popular because foreign sales. You know, it's it's for a lot of investors, it's a way to uh, to increase the probability of them getting their money back. So there's a lot of it, and um, I was able to get a, a couple of uh, interesting uh, movies. And the first one was Runaway, with, uh, as I said, uh, directed by Tim McCann. It starred Aaron Stanford and Robin Tunney. And uh, the interesting thing about that film was it bucked the trend to a certain degree about how psychological thrillers are done, uh, in that it was dealing in uh, a lot of nuances. It, the inspiration of that story, of Runaway, was when we hear about somebody who, like, let's say, a school shooting, there's always a a backstory to why a child 
gets to that point. And so what Runaway was, was it was sort of an exploration. It was not a documentary. It wasn't, it wasn't based on a true story, but it was, it was based on the idea of, of how somebody can get to that point. And um, so there's a lot of nuance to it. I think that's what uh, Patrick Wang, the director of In the Family, he saw the film and uh, he was attracted to that. Uh, the idea that it wasn't a sort of uh, in-your-face thriller. It actually makes the viewer work a little bit and, and try to put the pieces together. It's sort of a, a mystery, I guess. Patrick saw Runaway and uh, I, I guess he, you know, he had interviewed some other DPs and um, Patrick Wang, one-man band. He uh, wrote the script. He was the executive producer. Uh, he was the uh, the star and the director. And uh, we hit it off for the first time we met. I love the script. It's a great story. I think, uh, you know, my the initial sort of conversation we had was about the nuance of telling stories. And uh, one of my biggest concerns with uh, the script of In the Family was was that it might it, it on paper the the movie could very easily be read as melodrama uh and i i remember and patrick and i he likes to we can laugh about it now i remember asking him i said you know how are you going to keep this from turning to a, an after-school special which you know it could the idea of the film is it's about a same-sex couple two men who are together and uh, they're raising their son one of the partners in the relationship had a uh, biological son from a previous uh, relationship and uh, it's joey uh, played by patrick wang and uh, Cody, played by uh, Trevor St. John. And so Cody, the biological father, winds up suddenly dying in a tragic car accident. And they live in Tennessee, and suddenly their world, uh, Joey and their son, uh, Chip, their life is sort of turned upside down because now Cody's remaining, you know, the immediate family. Uh, up until this point, they were tolerant, uh, Cody's relationship with Joey. But once Cody died, uh, his immediate family sort of snapped out of it and said, well, okay, enough is enough. We'll take custody of this child who actually is our blood you know, part of our family. And so basically the film is a, uh, a custody battle. If it was a heterosexual couple and it was the same story, we would not be sitting here talking about it right now. It's a timely story and it's a story that's important, I think, and everybody involved in the film, we all, uh, everybody who read the script early on fell in love with the idea of portraying, it was very clear in the film, in the script, it was very clear that this film was, was attempting to portray a same-sex couple in a very normal way. You know, there's no, uh, absolutely none of the cliches or stereotypes of same-sex uh, families or, you know, relationships. So we, I had asked Patrick, you know, how are you going to keep this from becoming a melodrama? And he just sort of smirked and he said, don't worry about it. I got it under control, and you know he was right. He had uh, he he had a very specific way of approaching this, and there's nothing melodramatic about the film. Well, in your initial conversations with him, did you guys have uh, any reference points? You talked about like other films or other you know art pieces of art or anything that influenced the the look of the movie and your your visual approach to it. Um, the two we we looked at a lot of uh, art. We looked at a lot of photos. Um, we listened to music, and we had a, a, a long pre-production period. You know, this is a, this is a, a very low-budget film. It was under a million, way under a million. <laughs> and I always say when I when I have interviews with you know prospective 
directors with a low-budget movie, I always say, you have to exploit your resources, and the only resource we have is time. We don't have any money. So if we're really going to make this movie, the, the, the best way to do it is to don't rush into production. Let's drag it out. Let's find the right crew. Let's find the right locations. Let's get the best camera deal. Let's, you know, really do all that stuff, do all that legwork. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen a lot. And actually, you know, a couple of my other movies, I basically got hired four, four or six weeks before we started shooting. And uh, the movies always suffer because of this. Um, and it's usually the main culprit in that situation is the... Uh, it's we're revolving around actor schedules, and they're always trying to get the biggest name actor, so that they, you know, it's this whole business model. And in in you know Patrick's film, there were some, you know, there really weren't any big names. There was uh, some TV actors, a lot of theater actors. Uh, so we spent a lot of time. I mean, it was probably eight or nine months before we started shooting, and we were in prep, and uh, it was wonderful because he listened to me. Or I shouldn't say he listened to me, but he agreed with me. This was the right way to go about it. So we spent a lot of time just talking and looking at movies and pictures and stuff. And two of the uh, biggest influences in terms of other films uh, were Ingmar Bergman's uh, Scenes from Marriage. I mean, it's funny, you're in your... <laughs> In your introduction there, you mentioned Bergman and uh, Cassavetes because it was uh, Bergman and uh, Scenes from Marriage, not the, the movie, but the TV series, the five-hour TV series, which I have to admit I, I had not seen until Patrick asked me to see it. And then the other film was uh, Cassavetes' uh, A Woman Under the Influence, which of course I've seen many, many times. I'm a huge fan of this film. And the two films were chosen uh, for different, you know, various reasons, sort of as a jumping off point. I think that for Scenes from a Marriage, it was uh, a lot about the production design, you know, the sort of the undesign of it, you know, it sort of creeps up on you. You, you. you watch a film like that and you think, it almost looks like they just sort of walked into a room and just started shooting. But sub then once you, you watch it a, a more, you realize that it's very designed. You know, even if it's an, a virtually empty room with a, a, ca a file cabinet and a lamp and a desk, it just feels so right, you know. And so that was something that we definitely, uh, along with uh, John Elmanahi, who was our production designer on In the Family, we, uh, we really spent a lot of time talking about those things and... and and uh, exploring what this world was going to look like. You know, we were trying to, we were going for a very naturalistic feeling, you know, not to be confused with documentary or neorealism, you know. It's really, uh, we had to, we built this world from the ground up to give it this feeling. I think, and with, with uh, A Woman Under the Influence, the, the main inspiration from that film, I would say, is, 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 that, is the naturalism also. But not necessarily, not necessarily the camera work because it's sort of it's somewhat it can be somewhat frenetic in that film. Right. So it was more of a, it was also a more of a, it was the production design and the uh, attention f uh, to the to the acting to the performances and uh, allowing the performances. I mean, if somebody watched in the family and uh, and. A woman under the influence, you would say, well, there's there's no connection to these two films. I mean, they're very different acting styles, but uh, nonetheless, it, it's uh, it's a real focus. Uh, Patrick uh, came from a, a theater background, so obviously he was uh, very attuned to uh, giving the actors space, and there was a in very intensive uh, period of rehearsals, which I was able to observe quite a quite a bit of that. Well, I think the performances in the movie are really well served by the style, which I, I loved. I loved the, the restraint of it and the fact that you relied on a lot of long takes. 
you didn't move the camera unless there was a very specific purpose. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about that style and how you arrived at it. Was that part of the movie's conception right from the beginning? Well, that, that goes back to what Patrick said when I asked him, how is he going to keep it from being a melodrama? You know, the idea of having shot, reverse shot, wide shot, medium shot, the traditional coverage of scenes. If we, if we had shot that film in that way, again, I don't think we'd be sitting here talking about it. Um, and it's his influence from the theater. Um, we developed these ideas. Now, this is, again, where uh, a scene from Marriage definitely was an influence. I mean, there's a lot of uh, uh, long takes in that film also, and um, a lot of... And this is something that Bergman, of course, ex you know, explored quite a bit. You know, sort of a locked-off camera where actors would come and go, enter the frame, and um, again, giving the viewer sort of engaging the viewer. Now, obviously, these are things uh, that uh, you know you could call quasi-experimental, and it can be off-putting uh, to a lot of viewers. You know, you have to be sort of in the right frame of mind to. Uh, to enjoy this type of filmmaking, um, but if you are if you're in the right frame of mind and you are open to it, it really does uh, uh, elevate, you know, the experience. But we, over a long period of time, we sort of devised. We, we worked on the shot list and we devised uh, rules and a system of coverage. Uh, we, you know, uh, sectioned off the film and had a sets of rules for each section of the film, uh, knowing that we were going to get someplace. Um, we wind up, actually, in the, the end of the film is a very traditional coverage. Uh, there's close-ups and wide shots and reverse shots and reaction shots and all that stuff once we get into the deposition scene, um, the courtroom deposition scene. And we build up to that. And um, it was uh, very rigid. Uh, and again, going back to you know my experience with my, my my previous films, which were all you know a lot of handheld, a lot of camera movement, a lot of dolly shots, a lot of jib shots, a lot of running around after actors who are running after each other. Um, uh, it was liberating. I know that sounds strange, but it was very liberating to be able to say we're going to put the camera. We actually in the in the all that there's all this kitchen stuff in the kitchen. In, in Joey and Cody's home really is a, a transformative place. So there's, there's so, many, uh, so many times that the plot turns and he's in the kitchen and we're with, with him. And uh, we actually had a, uh, once we found the, the, the right location, um, we had camera positions that were, were just set in stone. And we uh, sort of started out far away and as the story progressed, we moved in closer and it was a lot of fun, you know, to just be able to find a, a, the right frame and light it the right way and then sit back and watch the monitor and, and let these actors tell the story. It was, uh, it was liberating, you know, and um, uh, also it allowed me, this is sort of a little off the track here, but it allowed me to get the lenses that I wanted because basically the producer told me, uh, Andrew Van Houten, who was, did a great job and, and was working on you know very tight budget. He said, okay, this is the deal. You can either have an operator, you can have a camera operator, or you can have you know whatever lenses you want. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of operating when I'm the DP, 
but I felt like it was a compromise in this situation that I could live with because there were so many locked off shots and these long takes where the camera was not moving at all. So yeah, we, uh, this, the style is, uh, it's, it's very interesting. You know, we were constantly aware of the viewer and what the viewer's experience was going to be and trying to, uh, in a way, I, I was just talking to our assistant director, Matt Miller, the other day, and he was saying that, because it's a long film, and so there's a lot of debate about that. <laughs> a lot of people like to talk about the running time of the film. It's almost three hours, and one of the things that Matt said I thought was really insightful. He said, you know, if the film was an hour shorter, which, sure, anybody could take this film and cut an hour out of it. You could. But it's almost like, I don't know, it's almost like... Uh, you know, if, if you're a runner and you, you know, the difference between running one mile or running 10 miles, there's no way that somebody who runs a mile can go through the same experience that somebody does who runs 10 miles. You know, it's like, it's, it, it's, it really is a whole other experience. To be quite honest, uh, while we were going through the process of making this film, I wasn't aware of what we were doing in, in terms of that. You know, I didn't realize it was gonna be such a long film. Uh, and, you know, that was one of the, one of the uh, challenges of the, of the life of this film is that so many film festivals, pretty sure that there's a lot of film festivals that didn't even look at the film when they just saw the running time. Because they're just thinking, well, where are we going to put it? Even if it is a great film, where would you put a two hour and 45 minute into their program? Well, and, and for a two hour and 45 minute film, uh, you know, as we've kind of been discussing, it has shockingly few shots i mean there are some really long i don't know if you i don't know if you know how many I'm there's i think many. that I, I i might be wrong about this uh i think it's about 240 shots uh -huh. yeah. which is crazy In 169 it's, minute movie yeah it's not a lot like of that. shots so what was the experience like when you're on set i mean how did the the actors and the crew enjoy the challenge of knowing that you know basically if they screwed something up you're gonna have to go all the way back to the beginning or or was it tense or how did that all play out well again you know i can't I, I can't say enough good things about Patrick. Um, he really, you know, as a, a director, one of the director's main responsibilities, aside from telling the story, is to assemble a, a, a team or to hire some people who are going to, you know, assemble the team. But ultimately, it, 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 it rests on that director. And so if you have a chaotic set, that's the, you know, that's the director's problem. And um, he's not, he or she is not going to be able to do their job if, if there's chaos on set. Patrick uh, handpicked the entire crew. And uh, he, and again, we had, a long, we had a long prep period. I mean, I remember uh, he, uh, Owen Strzok, our, our first AC, who's a great guy, uh, Owen, uh, Patrick was like, well, I want to meet Owen. And I called up Owen. I said, oh, and Patrick wants to meet you. I'm like, you have the job, but he just wants to meet you. And Owen's like, why does he want to talk to me? What could he possibly get? He's like... I don't want to talk, you know, sort of like joking about it, but Owen was saying, I don't want to talk to him. I, I, you know, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I don't want to talk to him. But, you know, they met, and, and from the meeting, Patrick, you know, was confident in that I had made the right decision to hire Owen and that Owen would be the right guy to have on set. And consequently, what we had was a, a great crew at, that, like you said, you know, we, we had to, uh, it's, it's challenging when you're doing, I mean, some of these deposition scenes where we had, some of these takes we did were 30 minutes long. There's one, I mean, there's, there's a lot of crazy things that happened, but it, he picked the right guys, the men and women, to work on this film, and we all realized the pressure we were under, and we all rose to the occasion. You know, it really pushes uh, the level of professionalism up, and it's, it can be incredibly satisfying. You know, I actually, honestly, I'm trying to think of, like, any disasters 
And I, I can't think of any, you know, and people worked really hard and um, did their job. And uh, I mean, everybody was so behind him. And this was this was his first film as a director, his right? First, film, Fe yeah. first feature. So you're working with the first time director and also he's also the star of the movie, basically. So I'm, I was wondering, does that alter your job as DP at all? I mean, dealing with somebody who's directing himself, you know, I mean. It does. And again, that's that was uh, 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 critical that we had so much time you know, quite honestly, just to get to know each other in prep, uh, to get to know, to, to develop a language, a shorthand, to become friends, you know, and it was a regular job also. There were times where I had to, I had to pull them aside and say, look, you know, these are your options. We've, we're limited time. Uh, we've got to, we have to make our days. We've got to shoot our pages. Uh, you're going to have to make this hard decision, right? You know, on the spot, and th those things still happened. And so we were, we had become friends, and we were able to talk to each other honestly. And and the same thing with, you know, I'd have to give him my evaluation of his performance, which I will admit that it's not one of my skills. You know, I'm not a director. But as we got deeper into the production, I uh, I started to develop an understanding of of his sensibilities and. Uh, there were times where I would, uh, I even, there was a, a couple of times where I actually gave him direction, which was very uncomfortable for me, especially when he denied me and did not do what I had asked him to. <laughs> but there was a couple of times where I gave him some direction and he, it was, you could see like a light bulb went off and he's like, oh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, he's exhausted. This is an exhausting thing to do. Ma making a movie is, is a very difficult thing to do. And just more difficult if you're the, uh, the director executive producer, writer, star. So we did a lot, there was a lot of playback, you know, video playback, which of course became a bear for the schedule when you're doing 15 minute long takes. And then he wants to play it back. That's, so now that's one shot is now 30 minutes. That's one take because he's got to watch it back. And so I, it, and so it altered uh, in that way. And then also I had to be very careful because there's a lot of uh, a lot of the scenes early on in the film there's no coverage there's no cutaways so if somebody makes a mistake if if a light goes out or if something falls over or there's a line that's screwed up you know whatever it might have been somebody has to catch that and um so that was uh, that was pretty challenging. You touched on how scenes from a marriage kind of influenced the production design and all that. So let's talk a little bit about the palette, um, because like everything else in the film, it's something that you designed again, sort of like following the Bergman model. You it was designed to not look like it was designed. And so how did how did you see the use of color in the in the film? Well, again, John Elmanahi, our uh, production designer, uh, and Patrick and I, we all uh, spent a lot of time together talking and going through the film and and then on our location scouts trying to discover what intrinsic value there was or wasn't in a particular location and what we could manipulate we this is a this movie is supposed to take place in a place in a Martin Tennessee we shot it in Yonkers New York and so <laughs> there was that so that was an interesting uh, challenge, and but we had uh, a lot of images of uh, architecture and interiors in, from Tennessee, and we we took from a lot of different sources and influences. We, again, we had rules, which is something I, I just I, I can't emphasize enough how how important that is, and and also how much I enjoy you know having rules as you're approaching and having a language. Um, when you're making a film and trying to tell a story because it, it, it's maybe it's because I'm lazy and that it gives you the easiest 
uh, avenue to cohesion. If you have rules and you follow the rules, when you finish the film, it makes it a lot easier to edit it when it makes sense visually. One of our rules was, we, you know, Patrick wanted to not use uh, uh, any primary colors, uh, not to have any garish anything, you know, to have it muted in a lot of ways, the colors. We, there was no mixing of color temperatures, lighting-wise. It was either, if we decided, you know, one of, the th one of my rules that Patrick gave me was uh, sometimes he would give me some freedom and he'd say, well, I don't mind if this is uh, cool or I don't mind if you choose to do this warm, but it has to stay one or the other. You know, we can't have cool daylight coming in from the window and then having like a warm fill light or some interior light that's on the mix. So there's no mixture. So that was great. I love that. You know, it's again, it, it went completely against uh, everything else I'd ever done. Uh, and, and restraint, again, that word, you know, restraint, it, it, it provided us a certain freedom and yet restraint. I don't, I don't really know how to describe that. But uh, we went with a lot of warm tones. We're very specific. Uh, John, our production designer, he, uh, he, re he actually, he said this is one of the hardest jobs he'd ever did which is funny, you know, because he's done a lot of crazy stuff and built spaceships and blown up, you know, houses and, and done all kinds of crazy stuff. And if you watch this film, it's not a crazy film. It doesn't look crazy, but it's that restraint. It's so difficult, you know, it's sort of like that, uh, that philosophy in jazz and music where they say, uh, you know, it's not the notes you play, it's the notes you don't play. That, uh, that matter, that are more significant. Again, this goes back to the viewer. So, you know, a viewer sees a, an empty room with just a few props. That could be much more compelling than seeing a room full of stuff or weird colors on the wall or having actors going in and out of lights and that kind of thing. We wanted to never detract from the story with in terms of color. And then when we did, there was a couple flashback scenes, for example. You know, it becomes so much more effective and dramatic and poignant when you have, all of a sudden you have the color. It's just like what you were saying about uh, not moving the camera unless there's a real reason to. And it, it gives it such more so much more power you know i've worked on a lot of things where the camera's always moving and nobody ever questions why so it was an exercise in restraint but not not as a device again it goes back to our prep that we had so many months to just really evolve the you know the style that we came up with so that it felt organic and talk about how that approach applies to uh, the lighting because the lighting in the movie is is again it's it's very beautiful but it's not it's not showy. I mean, it, for the most part, it seems like, uh, as I said in the intro, it's it's either natural light or it seems like you're trying to emulate natural light. And so uh, talk about that a little bit. Uh, well, thank you for saying it's beautiful light. Um, again, great crew, uh, uh, Gaffer, uh, Chris Clark, and Key Grip, uh, Ryan uh, Bisecker. We were going for naturalism and uh, a pretty straightforward approach of the largest soft source as close as possible. And then, you know, we're needed to cut it down a little bit. To a certain extent, lighting a space instead of lighting marks where the actors are going to be. Lighting the space, let the actors move around. And, uh, which is again, you know, I, I keep on saying this, but it, it's just so liberating to go against everything else. Most of the stuff I've done before where it's like, okay, the actor's going to hit this mark and he's going to fall into this type of light and he's going to turn around and he's going to move over there and there's going to be this kind of light and he's going to walk through this. And there are a number of scenes where, uh, where the blocking, I, I lit the, we would light a space and the blocking would change suddenly. And an actor would wind up in a place where the light wasn't so great. And uh, I love that. 
you know, because it was real and it added to this uh, naturalism. Um, we didn't have a lot of time, you know, this is sort of a typical low-budget movie, three, six-day weeks, you know, 18 days, and our biggest light was a, a 4K par, and that light was on all the time. We, uh, there was, all of our interiors, uh, were, were, it was uh, artificial light, you know, we never, except one time. The library scene, literally, that's the sun coming through the windows, and we shot the majority of that scene in a 25-minute period because it was either do that, and this sort of where the schedule fell on that particular day, it was either do that or shoot some, go shoot something else and come back to the library and then have a much less interesting scene. And uh, that probably is one of my, well, from a lighting point of view, I think it was my favorite scene because of that. We wound up cleaning up in close-ups after the sun passed, but the majority of that scene is that you know it's the sun coming backlighting them from high above. Uh, it was the f it was uh, the fall, so the, the sun was relatively high, not too high, and so we tried to uh, to maintain that. You know, it's very subtle. It's very subtle, soft light. And what uh, what kind of camera did you shoot the film with? We shot with a a red camera, uh, the MX Red. Uh, it's funny, I just was at, uh, saw Wally Pfister at the, doing the Kodak thing the other day, and uh, he's talking about how he's never shot video. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I have shot some film, but uh, of course I've shot more video than, you know, film. And we've, you know, we've looked at it. We've looked at the, uh, the numbers, and it's tough. It's, you know, it's especially with, uh, with first-time directors, which a couple of my, you know, a couple of my films were first-time directors. I feel, I don't think it's responsible to go into a situation and, uh, with a first-time director when you're not really sure how it's going to go down and be so tight with your budget. You know, if you can't afford to do a certain amount of takes because of your shooting film, then you know you're you're not gonna have, the story is not gonna get captured. So I have you know mixed feelings about the red. We we did have some issues with its uh, ability to uh, render uh, flesh tones. We wound up uh, we had always planned to do a film out, and we wound up doing the post work at Technicolor with uh, Martin uh, Zeichner, who was amazing, incredibly patient man. And, uh, and he brought a lot to the table and it was great. But, uh, you know, it was tough. Sometimes what ha the problem with video sometimes, as everybody I'm sure who's listening to this is aware of, it's a computer basically with a lens on it. And sometimes computers don't work. And sometimes there's no explanation as to why it's not working. And I'm not just talking about, you know, overheating and having to turn it on and off. I'm talking about color. So I had shot the, the film I had, I had done just before in the family, I had shot it was my first feature with the red camera, and uh, you know I felt very confident that the camera wasn't going to cause any major issues. But then again, that was a, a thriller, and you, you know you have uh, in a psychological thriller where you have a, a you know a very low key lighting and um, a lot of colors and mixture of color temperatures, handheld and people running around after each other. You have a wider latitude in terms of of mistakes, and so if somebody's skin tone isn't great or exactly where you want it to be it's not the end of the world but in a film like this where you're sitting there staring at somebody for five minutes and the camera's not moving and they're not moving it can become a problem 
But we shot with the red camera, and um, I, you know, I'm excited about their next version, the Epic. I haven't used the Epic yet, but uh, you know, it, the video stuff only gets better as far as I'm concerned. We used the Pancro lenses, Cook. They had just come out. Uh, they actually hadn't even had the uh, uh, the 18 millimeter hadn't come out yet. So we did carry the Zeiss Super Speed 18 millimeter, uh, which I think we used once. And it was appropriate at the time we used it. It was perfect timing to use it. But the rest of it was, you know, it was a standard set of primes. I really tried to stick with the 50 in a traditional sense. Tried to stick with that 50 and the 32 a lot. And so it's an intimate film. So didn't want to have the camera too close to our actors, but not too far away either. You know, so um, a zoom never made sense. We were so controlled that, and those lenses are just, they're gorgeous and they're perfect for this. You know, they're characteristics of being low contrast and sharp, and that was what we needed. You know, this was this was a, a I wouldn't say a high key film, but it, it, was, it was not very contrasty. I mean, there's a couple scenes, particularly the flashbacks, where we're, and some darker moments in Joey's journey to retain custody of his child. There's some darker moments towards you know the middle, and and so we were allowed to uh, kind of get back to that underlighting and the sort of darker stuff. But uh, the lenses were amazing, and uh, you know I wish I could afford a set of them because <laughs> apparently now you can't get them. Like they're like it's like eight months out or something. People are trying to buy them, and because uh, they're wonderful. Well, how did you resolve the issues that you had with the flesh tones? I mean, what was your solution? Well, M Martin uh, Zeigner at Technicolor, uh, who did uh, both the um, the video master and then also the timing for the the the, the DI sort of his problem actually I mean and it, it was a problem we we pretty much we were satisfied for the most part I mean I guess you know okay we could uh, pull the curtain here um, in the deposition scene Joey's lawyer played by Brian uh, Murray wonderful actor for some reason we had there's one two three four five six people in that room six actors and it basically was a conference room very standard coverage for some reason, Brian's close-up, his uh, skin went magenta. wasn't the lens. We saw it on set as it was happening. I, I, would, I swapped lenses, and it wasn't the lens, thankfully, because these are brand-new lenses. And we did, you know, what you always say, oh, we'll fix it in post, we'll fix it in post. So we, we sort of punted that. And there were some other questionable areas throughout the film, but they were all within, you know, definitely were able to correct. And when we got into the uh, coloring the film, we really weren't able to uh, correct it completely. And as a matter of fact, I, I just saw a, a 35 millimeter print of the film uh, here in LA at the Lemley and, uh, a couple months ago. And it was cringing, you know, those close-ups. And I was like, gosh, how did that happen? And, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's it's one of those, like, ghosts in the machine. I don't know what, you know, what, well, basically, as Martin was trying to get the color was trying to get the color right what would happen was he pushed it so far that the image started to get noisy and it started to break up and so he he, he went as far as he could and he would show us he'd say well this is how far he said i could go this far there look there's no more magenta but look at his face he looks like an alien so we had to we had to agree on a on sort of a quote unquote happy medium where we found a place where relatively speaking it was okay you know, it's tough. Before we wrap things up, I actually want to go back to the beginning of the movie and ask you about the opening shot, because I think it kind of sums up a lot of what we're talking about here in terms of being a very uh, 
in, in some ways a remarkable shot, but not one that calls attention to itself. It's sort of a standard way to open a movie um, with just, you know, a fade in on the frame. But when I was watching it, I felt like it had this sort of unusually like hypnotic poetic quality to it. And I was wondering if you could describe the opening shot and what you did to get that effect. Again, thank you. That's a, a wonderful shot. We, um, again, Patrick comes from this uh, theatrical background. And so we had discussed this shot. It's the first shot of the film. And we said, I don't think pretension is the right word, but we definitely thought we were making something wonderful. You know, whether or not anybody was going to agree with us was not our problem at the time. But we had great ambitions in, in, in approaching the making of this film. And so we wanted to start off with a bang. You know, we wanted to have this just this great opening shot. Now, on the script, all it says is fade up, boy sleeping on bed, alarm clock goes off, kid gets up, runs out. Doesn't sound very exciting. So we came up with this idea to do a couple of things. One of them was the fade in is uh, in camera. That was a, uh, we, you know, I racked the iris open. It's also a very long shot. There's actually roughly 20 seconds of that shot is complete blackness, but you can hear the breathing of, uh, of Chip, the boy, Sebastian, the actor. It's a locked off shot. We slowly rack open. And what we also did was we had a couple lights in the room that were on dimmers. And so I had two different cues. We had rehearsed this several times to get it right and shot it several times to get it right. There was two separate cues for lights inside of the room. And then also we had our, our son, the 4K par, was outside. And we actually panned that into the window also. We were in a third floor or something. and. The light, the, the, you know, we couldn't build scaffolding or we could, it was not on a, con, it was not on a boom condor lift or whatever. This was on the, the top stick of a, you know, a, a triple riser stand, which made our key grip nervous. But uh, it was, you know, a rack iris, a couple of uh, lights in the room being dimmed up and then also this 4K being panned into the room. And uh, I love it, you know, and, and it's, I'm so happy that you, you, you noted it because there is something, if we had simply lit it and then faded up, I don't think it would have had the same effect. So we did it the way we did it. And then of course we had to rely on Sebastian, the actor, to, um, to do his job. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it was it's nice. It was, uh, it's a, uh, it was a great way to start the film. Mm -hmm. And um, it's funny that I say that that's, you know, we want to start off with a bang because it's so sort of, it's still sort of very small. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that's, as we've, we've kind of said over and over again in this interview, that's the great thing about the movie is that it's that combination of ambition and restraint. And it's, uh, as all the reviewers have said, it's a really terrific movie. And I appreciate you coming by to talk about it. Thank you very much. It's a great honor and a lot of fun to be here. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, this has been Jim Hempill and Frank Barrera talking about In the Family. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.